from his awesome. Did I say awesome? From his awesome Frontier FinTech newsletter to his role in growing Burundi's FinBank SA, Samora Karayuki is a man of many hats who also deserves many titles. Innovator, leader, digital transformation expert, financial inclusion champion are just a few. His story embodies all that's fascinating and compelling about Africa's new FinTech wave, and he's here to share what's special in Burundi and beyond here on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm demystify show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Darm Demystify show and to continue demystifying what's actually going on in the fintech scene in Africa. We have Samora Kariuki, who's going to tell us a little bit about what he's doing in Burundi. Hi, Samora. Hi, Damesh. How are you? It's a real honor to have you on the show, and you've been up to some really cool stuff. So we'd love for our listeners to hear about that. Thank you. Thank you. And I really enjoy your podcast. I really enjoy your writing. So it's great to be on the show. You can definitely uh, come again for that. So, you know, (laughs) absolutely. We love flattery. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So thank you. As I said, my name is Samora, the deputy CEO of a bank here called FinBank. FinBank has been in the local market for over 20 years. It started its history as a leasing company back in 2000 and then later converted into a commercial bank in 2003. And it's been what you'd call a bespoke corporate bank from around 2008 to 2014. So actually, the modern history of the bank starts in 2014, where myself, together with our then-chairman, James Kibera, joined the management of the bank. This was part of an acquisition that happened in 2014 when the bank was acquired from Access Bank, which is a huge Nigerian financial powerhouse. So in 2014, actually, is the modern history of FinBank, and this has been largely you know, transformation of the bank. So the bank at the time was a very small corporate bank and with very little profitability and a balance sheet of around $15, $20 million. And so when we came in in 2014, the whole strategy was centered around using technology to grow the business. And this is from a liability side, balance sheet side, and through customer acquisition, through technological channels, alternative digital channels. So this has largely been what we've been doing in Burundi. So in 2014, as we mentioned, we came up with what we were calling a mobile money technology strategy. And it was based on two major planks. On the first hand, we had to partner with the mobile money players in the country. So there are two main mobile money players in the country. One is called EcoCash, which is part of the Econet Group. And another one is called LumiCash, which is part of the VHL Group of Vietnam. 
So when you change the strategy, you were actually changing a totally different business model. This wasn't like taking the old bank and just making it digital. This was a brand new strategy to address mobile money. And it's much more of a B2C play than a B2B corporate bank. Is that correct? Yes. But on the same time, we also wanted to grow our own retail customer base using alternative delivery channels. And so that was the core of our digital strategy. The main thing, actually, is in Africa, our access points, you know, banking access points are quite limited. So just for information, I think around the time when we are launching this strategy, it was around one ATM for each 100,000 people. Wow. In the United Kingdom, there's around 128 ATMs per 100,000 people. So, I mean, that's a significant gap in terms of access points. At the same time, you know, if you look at the branch network, there's around two branches per 100,000 people in Burundi, whereas in the European Union, you have around 30, 35 branches per 100,000 people. So that's, again, almost 15, 16 times the amount of coverage. Mobile and these alternative channels are very important in these markets just because of the limited existing infrastructure in place. And that was the thinking behind a lot of this. Also, from a financial inclusion perspective, we have a situation in Africa where, for instance, in the United Kingdom, over 96% of adults have bank accounts. This, at least according to the World Bank. Whereas you're looking at financial inclusion rates of 15, 16% in Burundi. Wow. Of course, mobile money takes these numbers up to around 60, 70%. But these were the numbers like we're dealing with in 2014 for the growth of the mobile money space. So I had a question around your role between like the trust account and the consumer in effect or the telcos, right? Then the margins there must be super thin. But I guess you still make profitable money there because of the volume. Is that right? Actually, the strategy around partnering with mobile money is that by law, each mobile money operator needs to have a trust account sitting within a commercial bank. Because in terms of technology, like the electronic money that sits in your mobile money account, it's called e-value or float. And so the central bank mandates that every equivalent pound or shilling or Burundi franc that's in mobile money must sit within a commercial bank account. And so actually the strategy is that if mobile money grows and more people are putting mobile money and the transactions are growing, then you have a huge you know, deposit balance that sits with you at zero cost. Because also technically, this money cannot earn interest because it does not belong to the mobile money provider in this case. It belongs to the millions of people using mobile money. So it's actually a corporate liability strategy so if you can get, in Africa, you have a situation where net interest margins anything between 8 and 12%. Wow. You can get, you know, low-cost funding, and then you deploy at low risk. I mean, that's a very good business. And up to today, we actually have a situation where almost 40% of our liability base, so you're talking around maybe $50 million, is mobile money deposits, and it's growing. So that's the main strategy. And... How it works, and actually how it's worked for us, is that on one hand, it's a simple corporate account. 
where you create an interface between your core banking system and the mobile money system. And you enable agents to come and deposit in real time into their mobile money through an interface that we built. But over time, you have to actually offer more banking services to the agents. So you have to enable them to be able to transfer money between their bank accounts and their wallets. And then we had to offer them financing so that, you know, manage their float in a better manner. So this basically overdraft facilities and also term loans for growing their business. So through that, we built a lot of loyalty between the agents and super agents that work for mobile money and ourselves. And since the agents and the super agents are the ones who actually acquire the float, then we have over 90% market share just because we captured that market pretty early. Despite the fact that the regulator has mandated that, guys, you actually have to open your trust accounts in multiple banks. Due to the clever integrations we did then, we still have over 90% market share in this business. Wow. Now I can see how the numbers really start to stack up. We don't necessarily get that kind of net margin spread in the UK. In terms of like the mobile cash side of things, how is that expanding out further? I mean, like, where do you see this stuff going to in the future? So in Africa, I think that's why a lot of people understand the power and the impact of mobile money. I usually call things like m and mobile money the first stable coins ever invented. Because <laughs> technically, that's just what they use. It's a one-to-one currency backed by reserves sitting within a bank and regulated by the central bank. And it's real-time. And most of these guys have built very stable systems. And there's a lot of scalability. Of course, as the technology advances, it starts getting clunky. But from a perspective where you had zero financial inclusion, no electronic way of sending and receiving money, you had situations where the African context is that we're getting more and more urbanization. So we have a situation where capital cities like Jumbura, Nairobi, Kampala, they act as economic hubs, which now you know feed the rest of the country from an income perspective. So before people used to send money using buses, using couriers, and now, you know, mobile money just makes it simple. Payments, transfers, and now we are getting more use cases of credit, loans, overdraft facilities, etc. And where we sit as a bank is actually to now offer these services to our mobile money partners. So you offer them loan services so that they can offer microcredit to their customers. They can offer overdraft facilities to their customers. They can offer savings accounts to their customers. So as they onboard more and more merchants, you can also offer bank accounts and overdraft accounts to their small business and even big business customers. So it's a whole ecosystem that develops over time. And we've seen in Kenya the example of then Commercial Bank of Africa, and it's called the National Commercial Bank of Africa, NCBA, which has really grown. So they launched this service called I'm sure you back in 2012. Yeah. At the time, they had a customer base of around 200,000 people. And they launched this service where essentially Mpesa customers could open a savings account and just a normal bank account through Mpesa, but the account would be held at CBA. Now they have around, I think, 21 million customers. And so the interface you know, when you sit in between mobile money and you're the banking partner, 
it can be a huge growth opportunity for you. Fantastic. I mean, you're clearly learning from Kenya and other kind of African countries. I love your fintech newspaper, by the way. I highly recommend it. And you're clearly looking broader than Africa. But what ideas are you taking, let's say, from Europe? Is there anything that you know, you're seeing here that is relevant over there? There are a lot of things that are relevant. For instance, I think one of the things that could be relevant is challenger bank propositions and how, like within the European space, you have what I'd call like more and more niche offerings. So you're having banks pop up that are targeting small and smaller niches and that are serving those niches in a better way. So for instance, I saw there's a new new bank in London called Ikigai, which is targeting mass affluent with investment opportunities. And I think that's something that would be very useful in Africa, just because the main approach for the African context first there was the initial wave of financial inclusion, which you know just brought more banking to the masses. And this happened within 2003, 2004, 2005. And then now we brought mobile money, which now even just drove financial inclusion even deeper. But one thing I think that has you know a lot of potential that we're seeing in Europe, in Africa, is just better and better niche offerings from banks. So you can have SME banking, like a bank that just caters to SMEs, a bank that caters to artisans, a bank that caters to farmers using technology. Because right now, it's just a similar, what I'd say, standardized product for everyone, which might not fit everyone's needs. I mean, one of the things I'm very struck by when we talk to the African businesses that we have done is how they are kind of focused on problems and solving problems. And I think that whole point around niche plays is sort of super relevant to that. It's kind of fascinating to see that actually the fintech scene in Africa seems to be driven by that sort of problem resolution. In a way, I guess we've learned from that in Europe. So it's interesting to see that as propositions are developed in different parts of the world. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Ikigai. Dom sent me the link this morning. I've had a look. It seems to be a very interesting proposition. But as you say, could equally apply to any middle-class person anywhere around the world, really. That's been my lived experience. And the same for many young Africans. You know, so you look at someone who's maybe in his late 20s, early 30s, even early 20s. We've had similar, to a large extent, if you've grown up in the capital city, you're a modern, urban, millennial, or Gen Z African. You listen to the same music as your global counterparts. You've grown up watching the same shows as your global counterparts. Yeah. You know, in theory, there's no difference really between you and someone living in London in terms of the way you see the world, the way you think about things. Of course, there are nuances that apply. And so some of these products actually can travel across the globe very easily. Actually, my background is an investment analyst. I follow the same investment blogs as anyone else. And so if something also offered me the opportunity to invest in the likes of Tesla, buy Bitcoin, buy global ETFs, that'd be great. That'd be fantastic. One of the things that we've seen, I guess, in this new boom of the internet is that people clone stuff very quickly, right? That, you know, an idea can travel the globe very, very quickly. And it's almost faster for somebody to create a replica of a proposition than it is for somebody to take their existing proposition and put it into other countries. So I think, you know, it's an interesting time for competition. But this point about the niches, you know, it's 
the thing that I call experience-driven banking. And you've done exactly what an experience-driven bank does, which is find a problem for a specific customer segment and address it, you know, fully, end-to-end, not just the banking piece, but all of the other bits. But what I love about what you've done is you really actually understand all of the numbers behind it, right? All the numbers that you reeled out in terms of ATMs, branches, you know, how many unbanked, etc. I mean, that's exactly the right start point for any kind of new bank proposition. It's true. And one of the things that actually excites me about Africa is that if you look at, you know, the mega trends, let's say of the last decade or the last two decades. So you had telecoms, you know, we had a place where we didn't have any landlines. We didn't have any fixed telephony infrastructure. And then when the telecoms came, all of a sudden, everyone has a phone and you can communicate. And <laughs> this telephone telecom revolution had also a revolution in the financial services space where now USSD is the main access point for financial services in Africa. And mobile money has also become so big. And also in terms of just, you know, logistics and everything. So, for instance, your phone number is one of the biggest pieces of KYC in terms of who you are, what your name is, and also how can I send a package to you? So, like, how logistics and how e-commerce works here is that you buy whatever you want to buy online, you pay via mobile money, and then when it's being delivered to you, since, you know, our physical address system is so, it's not, you just put your phone number and then I'll contact you. When it's time to deliver, I'll just call you and find out where you are. Now, for someone who's lived in a country where maybe, you know, your fixed address system is very good, it might seem clunky, but for someone who's here, it works perfectly. And so the lack of fixed infrastructure in terms of bank branches, ATMs and everything, actually for me, I think is a good opportunity because if you look at China, they've built one of the most advanced fintech markets in the world. And that's largely on the back of not having legacy infrastructure. Yeah. Look, the internet, we always said it, you know, levels the playing field, right? But we are now seeing this more so than ever before. I remember speaking at conferences and consulting to, you know, credit unions and building societies. And, you know, here in the West, they would say, well, you know, we can't afford to do digital. And I'm thinking, well, hold on one sec. All you need is a bit of bandwidth and a computer of your own. You don't need a data center anymore. What do you mean you can't afford to do digital or go full transformation? And you guys are living evidence that this is like a real level playing field. So it's a very exciting time, I think. There's still gaps. So getting developers, experts in data science, is still a bit difficult. So there's a huge HR gap. Also at the managerial level of many, many banks, just because you know, tends to be very conservative recruitment and the whole management training process. So it just creates almost like a priesthood. So if you have, you know, these older guys who have been raised in the traditional way of doing things, sometimes, you know, the innovation is slowed down. I'll give you an example. We had a situation where the tax authority invited banks and told them that we want you to make electronic tax payment possible and we're giving you this set of APIs. And so, I mean, luckily we have relatively young management, so everyone understood what needs to be done. And we think within a month, we had the project running. And for some other banks, they actually thought that the tax authority was going to come and install terminals at the the (laughs) bank to enable this kind of tax payments, just because that's what they're used to. So there's still gaps, but I think with time, most of these gaps will disappear. 
Well, it's very, very interesting. Well, Samora, thank you so much. We've run out of time, but we certainly could sit and talk about this a lot, lot longer. So yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And as Dan mentioned, your newsletter is incredible. And I think people are kind of interested to know what's going on in Africa fintech, then I thoroughly recommend reading it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me in the show. I really actually enjoy some of, a lot of your episodes. And Damesh on LinkedIn, you're a legend. So just keep it up. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. You're too kind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.